tonight to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Perhaps you heard the conversation that took place between the $20 bill and the $1 bill. It had been a long time since they'd seen each other, and when they met in the same room, the $1 bill exclaimed to the 20 Wow, it's been so long. Where have you been? And the 20 said, Hey, well, you know, same old thing. I spent some time on a cruise ship, and then I was at a baseball game, and then I was in a shopping mall, and You know, just same old thing. How about you? And the $1 bill looked back at him again and said, Ah, you know, same old thing. Church, church, (laughs) church. (laughs) That's funny. But on a more serious note, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the Apostle Paul wrote and he said that the love of money is the root of all evil. Unfortunately, that evil that comes from money love has crept into the church. Men have discovered that using Scripture... And using people's sincere devotion to God and their love for Him and the desire to see His work go forth, men have learned by using emotional tactics and manipulation to more or less manipulate people into giving to ministries that aren't really centered upon furthering the work of the ministry or magnifying the person of Jesus Christ. But rather, it's simply enriching the people that are occupying the pulpits in those churches. And that happens. And we're familiar with it. We've all been exposed to it to some degree or another as we've heard certain messages or seen productions and, and, and or we know someone that's been wounded in a setting, in a situation like that. And unfortunately, it is true that the area of giving has been tarnished, it's been broken, it's bruised. Now on the other side of that, the fact that there are wicked men and they are wicked men and that they're doing wicked works and they are wicked works, it doesn't negate the fact that the Bible still does teach giving. That giving is an important component in New Testament Christianity not only for the furtherance of God's kingdom, but of equal importance is the work that giving does in God's kids individually as we partake of this discipline that we are called to do in the Lord. What does the Bible teach about giving? What is proper biblical New Testament giving? As Paul the Apostle closes out the letter to the Philippians... He takes some time to thank them for the numerous offerings that they had generously sent to him. He wants to express gratitude because what we find in this is that they were the, if not 
the, they were one of the chief supporters of Paul's ministry over and over again, making sure that they send to him an offering so that he can continue on in the ministry. And so his first objective in this section is to thank them for the support that they've shown him. But in so doing that, we, the readers of this epistle, and all of those throughout church history, gain insights and understanding into this arena, this area of giving. What is New Testament biblical giving? Now, if you're here for the first time tonight, you must know that this is the first time I have ever talked about this topic from this podium. (laughs) And the only reason we're talking about it tonight is because our bills... No, no. is because we teach the Bible book by book, line by line, precept by precept, and you happen to be here tonight while we are in the last half of Philippians chapter 4. And so for that reason, that's our topic. Not because we're broke or we're asking for money or because, you know, it's for none of those reasons. It is because this is where we are and this is the word of the Lord for us tonight. So what does the Bible teach about giving? What does Paul say to the Philippians? If you'd look with me at verse 10 in chapter 4. Paul begins and he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last or now at last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. The first observation that we can make right off the top as we look at what Paul writes here is that giving, or when Christians give, it brings joy. It produces joy. A couple of months ago, there was a few brothers that I'm friends with that went on a short-term mission trip to Indonesia. Three men from a church down in Westchester, not too far from us. And the size of the church that they represented was 150 people. There's 150 people in the church there in Westchester, and three of them went to Indonesia. They had heard about the things that are going on there. Human trafficking is rampant. It's a real problem. Drug use is, is epidemic over there. It's, it's beyond what's seemingly repairable. The poverty level is so low that it magnifies all of these other dark things that are going on there. And the abandonment rate is through the roof. The number of children that are in orphanages or on the streets that don't have homes. So what these men did is they went to their church and they said, we're going to Indonesia to look at the scene there and to see what we can do. And we're dedicating this week's offering to what we do down there at that you know, venture and that mission. That group of 150 people down in Westchester County raised $14,000 through that one offering to send with these three brothers as they went to Indonesia. I thought it ironic that they went from one of the richest areas or counties in the world to one of the most impoverished. And they brought with them really one of the greatest things that they could, aside from the gospel, And that was, you know, they brought this offering. 
And these brothers were telling me the story of what happened while they were there. They had gone to these orphanages. They went to the houses where they were rescuing these women that were being traded in this trafficking industry. And and they saw all of this darkness, deep darkness, things that they couldn't express, a darkness that was beyond anything that they knew existed in the world. And at one point towards the end, they were sitting in a room with a bunch of native missionaries, people that are there full time doing the work of the ministry, running the orphanages, rescuing the women, preaching the gospel, saving children, all of this type of ministry. And as they sat there, this group of Americans, they were trying to establish and determine what the present needs are. What do you guys need? And after a couple times around the circle and no one really wanting to ask for anything, finally they just said, look, we're, we're not real smart guy, kind of guys, but what do you need? You know. And getting under, finally someone said, well, we, we have this truck that we use to move kids around and to, and to bring supplies into certain areas, and this truck is on its last legs. It's almost shot. And they said, well, how much is a new truck? And they said, well, it's... It's about $3,000 American. And his brother said, okay, we got that. It's covered. And then they said, what about you? As they went to the next person. And, and, and all of a sudden, something happened in that room. It was electrified. As the next set of needs was then brought forth. Well, you know, we, we're going into this village, and it's really, it's a hike. It's in the middle of the woods. There's nothing out there. And we really could use a sound system because we have the potential of really reaching a larger area. Well, how much is that going to cost? And they gave the amount, done, it's done, a portable sound system, you got it. And they went around the room, one after the next, food for six months at one orphanage. You know, uh, and, and they just did this. They gave away $14,000, and he was describing to me how this interaction was taking place and just the joy that filled that room. And I put myself there, and just listening to them tell me about, about that night when they were just giving away money, to to supply the needs of these missionaries over there. I was filled with joy. I thought, yes, that's so right. I mean, in America, 3,000 bucks gets you nothing. You could buy a row of chairs, you know, or something in in the States for that. And, And over there, it buys a truck. And I just thought, man, they nailed it, you know. It was so good. It just resonated. It was so right to hear as, as they just shared how their giving, their charity, was blessing and building the body of Christ. It was such a joy to hear. In many ways, when Christians give, it is the highest evidence, or you could say it is a real mark of Christian maturity when a person gives. I believe that that's why Paul is rejoicing here in the text. He's going to tell us it isn't because he got money. He says that's immaterial, irrelevant, don't need it, don't care about it necessarily. That's not the reason why Paul is rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? He's rejoicing because their giving was proof to him that Christ was working in their lives. Look there again at that verse, verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last, or now at last, your care of me hath flourished again. In other words, there had been a lapse in what they had been supplying with Paul. But Paul says, now that I've gotten it again, he realizes something else. He goes on, he says, wherein 
in that lapse, in that time when you weren't giving or communicating or supporting the ministry, he says, you were still careful. In other words, you were still wanting to. You were still giving in your heart, but you lacked opportunity, Paul says. In other words, this revival of your support for the ministry that God has given to me is an evidence to me that you were heartful and mindful and sincere in your giving all along. Because when you did have the opportunity, you did it. I'm rejoicing that you did it. Not because I need the money. He's going to go on and make that clear. But because giving was a proof to Paul that Christ was working in their midst. Talk is cheap. It's easy to say that we're going to give. But once we do it, then we prove that what was in our heart was real all along. It's like that guy who was having a conversation with his friend down in Mexico. And it was just the two of them, and they were both farmers. And, and the one guy said to his friend, he said, Amigo, if you had 100 sheep, would you give 50 to serve the Lord? And he said, oh, yes, you know I love the Lord. I would give 50 sheep to serve the Lord. And he said, Amigo, if you had 50 cows, would you give 25 to serve the Lord? He says, oh, you know I would give 25 to serve the Lord. I love you. He said, amigo, yes. If you had two pigs, would you give one of them to serve the Lord? And he said, that's not fair. He goes, why? He says, because you know I have two pigs. <laughs> it's easy to talk, isn't it? It's easy to say, if I struck the lotto, if I won big, I would give half of it to the Lord, or I would, you know, fund missionaries, or, you know, fund a radio station, or whatever the case might be. But then once we do it, that's the proof that, that it was real all along. And that was the reason for Paul's rejoicing. Now, whether it's in being the receiver of the gift, which produces joy, or the observer of the gift, like I was, listening to those three missionaries talk about their trip to uh, Cambodia, you know. Or, if you're the giver of the gift. In fact, if you're the giver of the gift, your rejoicing is even greater. Because Jesus said, it is more blessed, there's a bigger blessing in giving than in receiving. And so there's joy in giving. Now, he goes on from there, and he tells us that giving, the biblical premise or the biblical purity of giving is not driven by or connected to listen the needs of the ministry giving is disconnected from the needs of the ministry in a biblical sense listen to what paul says there in verse 11 he says not that i speak in respect of need or want it's the same word in the in the you know the language in other words, Paul is saying, it's good that you're giving. I'm rejoicing in your charity. However, it isn't because I have a need. There is no need in this thing. You would think from listening to many preachers, many pastors, many uh, Bible expositors, you would think that God is on the fringes of bankruptcy. That he is filing chapter 11, that... Uh, you know, he can't afford to keep his churches running, that if you don't come and bail God out, 
then he's going to be in worse shape than the government is in, in our, in our nation. Oh, you'll hear there, please. Oh, we're begging God because you know, you, you know that all this, you know, it's like that, that preacher who said, I've got good news and bad news. He said the good news is that, uh, no, he said the bad news is the church needs a new roof. And the people all went, oh. And then he said the good news is we have the money already. And the people said, oh, yeah. And then he said, the bad news is, it's still in your pockets. <laughs> you know. And from listening to many preachers, you would get the idea that God is really in a bind unless you come in and help him out. Well, listen to what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 50, verse 8. The people in this time were serving God with their lips. They were saying the right things. And they had the right appearance, but their heart really wasn't with the Lord, and they were covering that with their offering. Well, I'm giving to God. I'm sacrificing to God. So therefore, it doesn't matter what else is going on in my life, because I'm just giving, I'm giving, I'm giving. And listen to what God says about that in Psalm 50, verse 8. He says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. It's not the issue that you you have been giving. I'm not going to reprove you. Because of that. But listen to what God says. He says, I will take no bullock out of thy house. Nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. Underline that in your Bible. And the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains. And all the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. He says, I possess all things. There is nothing lacking to me. I lack absolutely nothing. So anytime you hear someone stand in front of you and say, well, God needs your money or else God's kingdom's going under, you could say, well, I serve a God that doesn't need my money. If God needs my money to keep his thing going, then I'm serving too small of a God. Because the needs are never the directive for the giving or the reason. Giving is never to be motivated by the need. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly. That means if in your heart, you're going, oh, I can't believe I have to give to God. I can't believe I have to write this check or put this envelope in. God's saying, don't do it. If that's your attitude, your mindset, if you're grudging in your heart about it, don't do it. He doesn't, he's not interested in that. He doesn't need it. If he were hungry, he wouldn't tell you. The world is his and the fullness thereof. It's not for him. I wouldn't, he says, not grudgingly. And then he says, or of necessity. So you're not to be motivated by force or manipulation. And you're also not to be motivated by the need. Not of necessity. Oh, well, we have these needs. Now, listen, there are needs. Yes, that's true. But that is not to be the motivation behind why we give. Well, then why would we give? He goes on. He says, for God loveth a cheerful giver. That means someone that out of the abundance 
the thanksgiving that's in their heart, the appreciation for who God is and for what he's done that they desire, that they want to give to him. That's the true motivation for giving. It's not to be motivated by need. Now, the flip side of that is that when a congregation doesn't give, when a congregation withholds and says, well, I don't have to, I'm not under the law, and God doesn't want me to begrudge it, and it's not out of necessity, so therefore I won't do it. The result of that can be spiritual stagnancy within a church or within a congregation. Look at Paul. Read with me in verse 11. Listen to what he says about himself. He says, not that I speak in respect of want or need. Listen, he says, for I have learned, Pastor Paul learned this, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Now listen, when you don't give, or when a congregation doesn't give, it doesn't grieve God, nor does it limit God, because he is capable of producing the same results, whether or not we are givers. But here's the point is that God, like Paul, because Paul learned it from God, is content to just let things be as they are. He's content if he's abased. He's content if he's abounding. He's not driven that way. That's not the question. Here's the question. What can God do with that which is given to him? That's the real question. What can God do with what's given to him? I think of Jesus on that hillside. For three days, he was there with the multitude. The multitude was hungry. They didn't want to go. They were afraid that they'd miss something. And the disciples were tired. And they said, Jesus, send the multitude away that they might find something to eat. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you give them something to eat. <laughs> Lord, there's 5,000 men here. Well, what could we possibly do? We, can't, we, don't have, we have 200. We have nothing. It would cost 200 days wages to feed this many people. And he said, well, what do you have? And they said, well, there's one little boy over here. And he has five loaves and two fish, and he's willing, Lord. He's willing to give up the lunch his mother packed him and offer it to you, if that might be anything amongst this great multitude. And Jesus smiled, and he said, bring it here. And he took it in his hands, and he lifted up his hands up to heaven, and he blessed it, and he began to break it and divide it to the multitude. And Jesus turned one boy's sacked lunch into a meal that fed 5,000 men, not including the women and children, and yielded 12 baskets of leftovers for later. That's the real question, is what can God do with what is given to him? Listen, Jesus was capable of producing his own loaves and fishes. He's God, right? He could walk on the water. He told Peter, cast on that side of the boat. And Peter couldn't pull in the hull because there was too many fish in it. He could have created his own fish, his own bread. He could have rained down manna from heaven. He could have done it a thousand ways. But he chose to work through the offering that was given to him. And the same thing holds true today. It isn't a matter of he requires us to give. That's not the point. 
It isn't a matter of that there is a need, though there might be. The real issue is, what can God do with what is given to him? 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. He says, he that ministers bread or seed to the sower also will sow or give bread to the eater. He will multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. He knows how to multiply what you sow and increase the fruits of your righteousness. And that's the way wherein he chooses to work. And so giving causes productivity and movement within the kingdom of God. The third thing that we observe from Paul's letter, or this part of Paul's letter, is is that another part of what giving does is that, listen, it creates contentment by freeing us from the hold that money can have over us. Giving creates contentment by freeing us from the hold that money can have over us. Look again with me back at verse 11. He says, not that I speak in respect of need, for I have learned, notice that, that this isn't something that was downloaded into Paul. It wasn't something that was a gift that was his supernaturally, but it was something that he learned. He said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. So he tells us what he learned. He learned contentment. I learned contentment. Well, contentment in what, Paul? Verse 12. I know both how to be abased. That means humbled, literally, or empty, or poor. I've learned how to be abased. And I know how to abound. That means to have plenty, to to have more than enough, to be rich, if you would. I've learned how to do both of those things. In whatsoever state I am in, I've learned therewith to be content. How to abase, how to abound everywhere. And in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, there are two areas that you can find yourself in, like Paul, wherein you can be discontent. If you are abased, or if you are hungry, or if you are poor, you might find yourself in a state of discontentment. Why? Because you want more. Nobody wants to be poor. Nobody wants to be on the low scale of the poverty line. You know, that's just not where anybody wants to be. If you're in that place, and you're experiencing discontentment because of it, it's because you want more. On the other side of the coin, you might be rich, and you can be discontent when you're rich. Why? Because you want more. Same problem, right? (laughs) The rich man is not content because he wants more. The poor man is not content because he wants more. Paul says, I have learned to be content whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor. I've learned contentment in both of those things. There's many people, especially in the United States of America, that want to be rich. Listen to what the Bible says, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what Paul wrote to his young son in the faith, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, food and clothing, Let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich 
That is, those that want to be rich. That's what drives you. You spend your time thinking about how you can increase your accounts, how you can have more, how you can become you know, a self-made man or woman where you're just financially free, financially independent, and you want to be rich, and that's what drives you. And only you can know if that's what's going on within your heart. You spend your time, what kind of business could I start? What kind of item could I invent that will just blow up the banks for me? And that's what's on your mind. Paul says, I'm speaking to you now. He says, they that want to be rich, listen to what happens to you. They fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith. When I even just read that, I think of, uh, you know, who was that guy um, in the book of Numbers, that the Don, Balaam, you know, and the Balaam who, who was a prophet, he was gifted, God was using him, there was a place for him in God's kingdom, but he erred from the faith because of greed, because of a desire to be rich, wanting the riches of Moab and willing to sell God's people into sin in order to get it. I think of Gehazi, who was the next in line to be the prophet for Israel, to take the mantle of Elisha, one of the greatest prophets. And yet because he so coveted the Babylonian garments and the money that was offered to them by Naaman the Syrian, he erred from the faith. And he was smitten with Naaman's leprosy, erring from the faith. I think of Judas Iscariot, who for 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed the Lord. Wanting to be rich, wanting to be independent, to feel that power of being self-made and independent from needing anything from anywhere else. And it caused him to betray the Lord of glory. I think of Simon the sorcerer, or Simon the witch, if we really want to be accurate about who he was. And he said to Peter the apostle, he said, here, I'll give you money, but give me this power that whomsoever I lay my hands on, he may receive the Holy Ghost. And Peter said, thy money perish with thee. I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness. Repent, for you will not see the sun for a season. There are many that desiring to be rich have pierced themselves through with many sorrows, erring from the faith. How is contentment learned? Verse 13, back in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. It isn't in poverty that you find contentment. It isn't through wealth that you find contentment or learn it. It's in the person of Christ. When you realize and recognize that he who made you is committed to you, is faithful to you, has a plan for you, promises that he'll provide for you, finishes what he's going to, or he's going to finish what he started in you, and in this interim, while we're on this earth, he's working all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And when you begin to trust in and lean upon Christ for all of your needs, your daily needs, your future needs, your mental needs, your emotional needs, when all of that is surrendered and yielded to Christ, guess what you begin to learn? Contentment. 
Some people say, I have the hardest time trusting God. You know what they're really saying? They're saying, I don't know God. Because when you know God, it's really not that hard to trust him. When you know who he is and what he promises to do, and you take him at his word and you believe it, it's very easy to trust him. And then you begin to see him working in your life and providing for your needs and working through the circumstances and situations that you're in. And you come to a place where it's easy to trust the Lord. And like Paul, you can say, I've learned to be content, whether I'm abased or whether I'm abounding everywhere. And in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be empty, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And giving plays a part in us discovering that contentment. Because when we give, it frees us from the bondage of money. We begin to give away. Isn't it amazing how we think that we possess things? These are my possessions. But in reality, isn't it true that often it's our possessions that possess us? I've been there. You see that nice car. You always wanted one like it, that color, that style, that size engine, that sound system, that instrument panel. And all of those things allure you and you go, oh, I could get that. I could, that's in my means. I just have to sign on the dotted line at 9%. It's, it's, this is great. I can afford this payment. I can make it. And you just get this, oh, this is going to be great. The feeling of freedom, the top down, the wind in my hair, sunglasses on, my arm out the window, the, the, the bass booming. And you get this vision in your mind of what it's going to be like. Freedom. And then you sign on the dotted line. And what do you feel the next day? Bondage, shackles, handcuffs. You're like, oh, no, I got to make this payment. See, a week ago when you were thinking about it, you're going, I really like my job. And, you know, I'm going to be there for a long time. And then as soon as that transaction is complete, you're going, oh, I hate my job. And now I got to keep it. You know, and all of a sudden what's happened is that your possessions have begun to possess you. And part of what breaks the bondage of possessions in your life possessing you is when you begin to give them away. It's just it's not important to me. You become a giver and you discover freedom. I've learned to be content says Paul. Well, he goes on, and notice in verse 14, he says, notwithstanding, even though there was no need that that you sent to me, even though I don't need this money, Paul says, notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. This was good. It was a good thing for you to do. Not because of the need, but it was good for you. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, No church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. Paul says, listen, I've been in this ministry for a long time. And since the time that I departed from Macedonia, there has not been one single other church that has made an offering or supported me financially. But you only, you have done this. And that's a great thing. And so Paul gives them that word. He commends them that they were supporters of his ministry. But notice this. If you read between the lines, what you discover or infer about Paul's relationship with the churches is that he never asked them for an offering. If Paul starts your church and a revival takes place and Paul asks for an offering, what does Paul receive? 
an offering. I mean, that's, you know, basic, one-on-one. This tells us Paul didn't ask. Now, we don't know whether or not that's right or wrong. That, that's not the issue. He doesn't, you know, condemn those that do or commend those that don't. We just observe that he didn't. That he was content to just take what came. That's why we don't take an official offering. Sometimes people say, well, why don't you dim the lights and put on, you know, nice music and send people around with big baskets, you know, and, and, and make a... Pr- because we just, we, we recognize the manipulation that has, you know, taken place in the kingdom of God. And we don't feel that that's the way that we want to operate. It's, God, it's between you and the Lord you're giving. And so... You'll notice on the walls as you leave, there's places for you to bring your tithes and your offerings, and that's good and right. But isn't it refreshing when you you, you can come and you can hear the word of God, and you can be immersed in the songs of the Lord, and you can experience fellowship, and not have it on the back of your mind somewhere that maybe they might just be doing this whole thing because they're trying to get money from us. To me, that's refreshing. And so Paul says, in a sense, that's the way I operate. Hey, no church communicated with me except for you only. I, I'm not an asker, but I'm grateful that you were supporters of me. Even while I was in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. Now, he goes on to say that giving should be done out of an eternal perspective. Notice in verse 17, he says, not because I desire a gift. I don't want it. And this is the second time he's telling us this. It's in the Bible. That means he's not lying. (laughs) You know, if a preacher says that, you go, all right, already, take the offering. We get the point, you know. But Paul, it's in the word. He's saying, listen, I don't want it. It's not about that. He says, it's not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. In the sixth chapter of Matthew, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 1, Jesus said this. He said, take heed that you do not your alms or your giving, your gifts before men to be seen of men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But when you do your alms, or when you give, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms, or thy gifts, may be in secret. And thy father, which sees in secret, himself shall reward thee openly. In other words, when we give to God with the right motivation and out of a cheerful heart sacrificially, the Bible says that we receive a reward upon our entering into his kingdom eternally. Paul said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive for the things we've done in the body, whether they be good or evil. The word is bima. It's a reward seat. And when we stand before the Lord, we will receive rewards. Jesus said, even if we give a cup of cold water to a disciple in his name, we will not lose our reward. And so our giving isn't just something that furthers the kingdom of God on earth or delivers us from the bondage of money practically, but it is also storing up for us treasures in heaven. And in that, catch this now, we gain an eternal perspective. 
Not only should we have an eternal perspective, but giving gives us an eternal perspective. In Luke chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus said, listen carefully, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so when we give to the Lord, not only is it stored up there in, in the way that we can, you know, build an account for eternity to come that will affect the size of our reward or the scope of our enjoyment, something. I don't even know how to look into what a heavenly reward is. But when we give, what happens is that part of our self, part of our allegiance is taken off of the things of the world and sent ahead and invested in heaven. It is true, someone has said, you cannot take it with you. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And Paul says, it's not that I desire a gift. That's not why I'm commending you in this or encouraging that you do it. But it's because I desire fruit that will abound to your account. Sometimes I feel like a spiritual investment broker. I do not not asking for money, but, you know, my part of my role here is seeing what the needs are in the body and then praying and finding out who God is raising up to meet those needs. And sometimes I literally feel like I'm selling eternal stock. And it's sad that it has to be like that. But but it's like, you know, you pray and God puts someone in your heart and your mind and you go and you talk to that person. You say, hey, you know, there's a real potential for you to make an impact in the kingdom of God in this area or that area. And someone, you know, usually their eyes roll a little bit, you know, and they're like, oh, no, you know, I'm so busy, you know. And, and then you begin to just share and say, listen, you have the opportunity to touch this many lives or impact this many people for the gospel or make this kind of a difference or serve the Lord with your heart in this capacity or something. And sometimes I literally feel like I'm selling spiritual stock, like, like people are going, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to make that commitment, you know, volunteer and it's thankless and it's invisible and it's gum under the seats and it's, you know, and it's clean. I don't know about that. Listen, it's eternal. If a cup of cold water given to a disciple in the name of Jesus, it receives a reward, then how much more when we give of our time, our energy or our resources to the things of God? It's eternal. It's an eternal reward. And Paul says, it's not that I want a gift. It's not that I want your time. It's not that I'm trying to annoy you with menial tasks in the church or the kingdom of God. It's that there is an eternal weight of glory that is coming. And you have the opportunity to invest in it, whether it be financially or whether it be with your energy or with your time or your resources. Give yourself to eternity because that will be the ultimate reward. It lasts forever. I desire fruit that will abound unto your account. He goes on in verse 18. He says, but I have all and abound. When's the last time you heard a preacher say that? So refreshing. I have all. I abound. I am full. Having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. You know, most preachers would have a thermometer on their prison wall, right? And Paul would say, I received what you got, and that did make a difference. It brought it up a little bit. And if some of the other churches would do their share, we could have that, you know, that goal in no time. You know, no, no, I am full. I have all. Having received from Epaphroditus that the things which were sent of you, he says, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. 
it pleases the Lord. When we give to the Lord, it pleases the Lord. You see that word sacrifice? You were probably hoping I'd skip it, right? The word sacrifice indicates that it costs something. The gifts that they gave, the blessing that they sent to Paul, wasn't something that was just their leftovers or you know, what, what they had laying around, the loose change that was in a drawer, but it was a sacrificial thing. For it to be a sacrifice means it hurt a little bit. I'll stop with that. Let's move on. And this is the last thing here. Number, if you're taking, I don't even know what number we're on, but hey, it's in verse uh, 19. Listen to what Paul says. He says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, if you haven't been listening the whole time because of what the topic is, and you're like, oh, come back next week. We'll be in Colossians. We'll be past all this. Listen, now you want to tune in. And this is where everybody sits forward because people are like, oh, I've heard that verse. So that's where that is? Huh, Philippians 4. I'm going to mark that one, you know. My God will supply all of your needs according to his... That's a good one. I'm claiming that one. I'm going to... I'm going to... That's a good promise. No, no, listen. In context, Paul is saying to us here, he is saying to them, he is saying, giving ensures financial sufficiency. Giving ensures financial sufficiency. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, the Lord is very clear. He says to his people, he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. How many have heard that before? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Did you know that there is an exception to that? There is one exception where God gives us permission to test him. God says, test me. In Malachi chapter 3, the last book of the Old Testament, listen to what God says to his people, telling them to test him. He says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. The tithe is the tenth. It was what under the law the people were required to give to God as an offering. Under the law, they were required to give the tenth or the tithe. Now, we are not under the law and tithing is not something that we are bound to do. That is not the law of someone who's under grace in the New Testament. It is the standard, however, of the principle of scriptural giving or offering. If you're part of, well, look at what he says. He says, bring ye all the tithes, where? Into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me, or test me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's saying, bring the tithes into the storehouse, that there might be meat in my house. That is, bring the tenth, bring the offering into the house of the Lord, so that there might be meat. And then God says this. He says, and test me. And test me. How how are we to test you, Lord? Test me now herewith, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Test me by bringing in your offerings and see. Now, wait, no, no, doesn't the Bible say don't tempt, don't test? Here he says, test me. In this you have my permission. Bring the offering and see if I will not pour out on you a blessing. Not only will I pour out on you a blessing that you won't be able to receive it, but look what else he promises he'll do. Verse 11. 
He says, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. You say, well, what's the devourer? In those days, they were locust worms. They would get into the crops and a locust, uh, you know, what are they called? They're not a flock. Uh, a bunch of locusts would, a swarm, thank you. A swarm of locusts would get into your crops and they would take out your whole harvest for that year. Well, what does that mean for you and I? The alternator just went. The washing machine just blew up. The hot water tank is now on the basement floor. You know, the contents of it. You know, the devourer. You know how it is. You get your tax return and you're really excited. You're finally getting ahead. And then the kid, you know, hits a baseball and it goes through the bay window in the front of your house. You know, and, and, and you know how that is, the devourer. That finally, we're, we're starting to catch up. And then it just seems like there's something that just, listen to what God says. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed. For you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. All of that connected to God calling his people to be givers. See, prove me now, test me now in this, saith the Lord. Hey, I challenge you, try it out. You'll like it. 13 years I've been a Christian. And from the very beginning, my wife and I have just purposed in our heart that no matter what the situation is, whether we can afford it or whether we can't, we're going to at least tithe. We're going to give God the tenth and just trust him. We're going to take him at his word. Now, the the truth is there was never and still isn't. There's never a time when we could afford it. There's never a time when you add up all that you have to pay out and all that you make and you can then just take 10% of your increase and give it to the things of God. It never makes sense. But we were young and stupid and we took God at his word. And can I tell you, in 13 years, we have never missed a payment, we've never fallen behind, and we've never been trapped in debt. You know, we used our overdraw Uh, line of credit thinking like oh that's okay you know and then we got wise and we got out of that you know but that was foolishness and all i feel like i have to tell you that i can't you know leave that out but but can i tell you that god has been faithful that in all the time of doing that he has blessed us beyond anything that we could ask or think uneducated unworthy nothing just taking god at his word sometimes i would say to georgia and this might sound irreverent to you I didn't say it irreverently, but I would say to Georgia, you know, I would say, did you pay the money insurance this week? (laughs) You know, and I was asking, did you write out the tithe check? (laughs) You know, (laughs) because in in a lot of ways to us, we looked at it that way. We have to be faithful in this. So anyway, just onward, Christian soldiers. Let's close this out. He says in verse 20, he says, now unto God and our father be glory forever and ever Amen. All of it is for the glory of God. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So Paul lays out for us the benefits of giving. He tells us that it brings rejoicing. And it does. He tells us it's one of the keys to contentment. It's in giving. To see your resources as a source of blessing others brings contentment. It's a source of eternal reward. 
And it's the means of furthering the gospel, the work of God. He tells us those things. You say, okay, I hear you. Those are good points. But why is this so important that it's worthy of a whole week? Two reasons. One is because I couldn't finish chapter 4 last week. But really, it's because generosity is at the very core of who God is. John chapter 3, verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God generously gave his son to an undeserving world. The most treasured, most rich, most glorious thing in all of the universe was something that was given by God to an undeserving people. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, For God, who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now freely give us all things? He's a giver. He that withheld not his son, he's going to give us the things that we need. In the Sermon of the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to those that ask him? He's a giver. He's a giving God. It's at the very core of his nature. And I love Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. At the very core of God's character and nature, he's a giver. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be saved. We could have eternal life. He now promises to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He promises that he'll watch us, protect us, provide for us, that he'll keep us. And he's on a ceaseless quest to conform us into his image and make him like himself, make us like himself. And so he calls upon us and he says, listen, this is a part of who I am and it's a part of what I'm working in you. And so, though it's abused, though it is misused, though there is abomination in the name of Jesus Christ under the guise of Christian giving, Yet there is a biblical place for it and a blessing attached to it for those of us that would take God at his word and in sincerity give of ourselves to his work, his kingdom. So may all of the promises that he gives to us concerning this be applied to you. and May the blessings of it be attached to you and may you find yourself more and more content, freed from the things of this world, delivered from the cares of this life, and conformed into the image of Christ. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for this word. We thank you, Lord, that you tell us how to live. You're the author of life, and you tell us how life works. And so I pray, Lord, that we might take the things that we've heard tonight, that we might be able to apply them and and, and even just digest them, Lord, that we might go back and look and read. And how I pray, Lord, that your heart would come out through all of this. Lord, we thank you that this church that you've provided for us. 
We thank you, Lord, that we can say, like Paul, that we abound, that we have all, that we're full, that we don't need to beg for money. Lord, we know that's only because of you, because of your grace. And how I pray that you would take and appropriate these things. But most of all, Lord, help us to see Christ in this. Help us to see that you are the one that spared not your son, but delivered him for us all. And that you're committed to complete that work that you've started in us, daily supplying us with grace, daily giving to us forgiveness and pardon, daily meeting the needs that we have. How we thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just speak to us, that you would fill us, that as we go tonight, we would leave rejoicing, Lord, in your ways, in your person, and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just sing those two choruses again of uh, Bless the Lord.